This is the Power of Genetics podcast. In each episode, I'll be interviewing successful practitioners and impactful thought leaders in the world of health and performance. They will share their journey, their insights, and their best advice for us all. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe. Let's begin with today's episode. I'd like to welcome today's guest, Merrick Morlin, on the Power of Genetics podcast. I am bringing you something extremely interesting and different today. So I hope you're listening and a very big welcome to you, Merrick. Thank you. How are you doing? Well, I'm very happy to be talking to you. When I when I started uh, my um, creating this new season of, of Power of Genetics, I thought about our conversation we once had where you dropped me off at the hotel at a conference yeah. and we were sitting in the yeah. car chatting and and what an amazing and and interesting and and wise conversation it was so i was like well this is this is a beautiful place to bring bring our conversation and share it with everyone and and not just keep it to myself so um i am going to let you do most of the talking and i'm also going to let you kind of introduce yourself and tell everyone who you are um you'll cut maybe just a little bit about you know what you're doing right now but not too much because I want to kind of save most of it for the end um and then um let's let's go back to the beginning and then and you know I have a little insight into where it all began but I would really love you to share your story I mean it's it's just yeah. incredibly inspirational and amazing and I know everyone's going to want to hear it yeah. Well, you know, that conversation to the hotel had been a, a long time coming because um, my wife, uh, Dr. Chrissy, had just talked tons and tons about you. And I, I had so many questions and you're so gracious to kind of just answer as many as you could. Um, nutrigenomics has been, you know, an interest of mine for a long time. Um, but as a kid, I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis when I was six months old, which is obviously a genetic disease that you're born with. And that impacted pretty much every decision I've ever made in my entire life. Um, and so I knew that genetics was powerful, even as a young kid, um, and that it, it certainly shaped the way we were able to do things and what our bodies were capable of doing um, and the disadvantages or limitations that were put on us by you know, the genetics that we, we were just kind of handed. Um, when I was 12 years old, I was sitting outside the doctor's office and I overheard the doctor speaking to my parents about how I, they needed to be prepared because I may not live long enough to get to college, um, that they wanted to make sure that, you know, they're, they're good with the idea that, yeah, I still needed to encourage me, um, but be careful. Don't let me play sports too much. Don't let me, you know, get hurt. Don't let me. And, uh, I was a pretty obstinate little 12 year old and, uh, that made me pretty angry. And I remember, uh, kind of walking out of that and, and thinking, you know what, I'm going to make people healthy and I'm not going to be a dumb doctor to do it. Um, I was 12. So, so I was very black and white <laughs> and, uh, and I decided I, I have a 12 year old. Well, I have a 13 year old and they know everything in a binary way. So I totally get yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I was basically, well, obviously the doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. So I'm going to do it without having to be a doctor. Um, and that, that was oftentimes when I, people ask me how I got to where I am, I start with, that's kind of the point that directed everything past that. And, and from there, I didn't know what it was called yet, but that's how I knew I was going to end up being a nutritionist and personal trainer. Because um, I love the passion of being able to take people's uh, you know, genetic material and bring it to their max, bring it to their highest potential. Um, because that's what I wanted to do. 
Uh, that whole time I had been into martial arts. I had done soccer. Every time the doctor said I shouldn't play a sport, that's the first sport I signed up for. Um, <laughs> so they said, don't let him play football. I tried out for the football team. Don't let him play basketball, so on and so forth. And obviously they were not real thrilled when I wanted to fight because um, I did want to become a martial artist and I wanted to be a professional fighter. And that was uh, pretty much a big no from the entire medical community. Um, they did not think it Imagine. was a good idea for me. Yeah. So. And can I ask you not to interview too much? I was just wondering, you you had the opportunity for for sports, so traditional sport, I don't want to call it yeah. like soccer, yeah. football, and everything, basketball, and you chose martial arts. Can you I give did. a little bit of insight into that? You know, I had a, my one of my first kind of martial arts senseis was a guy named Stefan Stenzel, and he was an odd character. He uh, he was a Chuck Norris impersonator. Um, a lot of a lot of kind of just personality to him. And uh, he mentioned a lot about the mental aspects and the psychology of sports had always kind of been inter interest for me. And martial arts, you know, just kind of embodies it. it. It literally talks about, you know, the Bushido code and the warrior code and honor. And and that was just sort of a little mystique to me when I'm a teenager. And I, I kind of wanted to, to kind of dive into that a little bit. Um, and the fact that it is, you know, when I looked at all the other sports, I said, well, where do they all come from? The idea that basically you're practicing a high level of competition in a safer and safer environment. Right. So initially competition was to the death. Um, that's way back in Greece, you know, war and everything else. And obviously you couldn't practice to the death all the time. So you started making rules and pretty soon you have a different levels of different types of sports. And uh, so for me, martial arts was the pure sport, the original sport. Um, and that's kind of how I viewed it. And I said, well, if I'm going to go all the way, I'm, I'm, I'm going all the way. And to me, that not, not to death, but on. like just before that, right? So I said, I want to play the highest sport, not, not war. I said the highest sport. So I said, what's the closest I can get and still be a sport. And, uh, and that's kind of where I, where I got to. Um, and it was also the most, took the most taxing physicality out of me. Um, so, you know, when I talked to parents about signing their kids up, uh, under the age of 10, I usually say gymnastics or martial arts, uh, because if they learn one of those, as they progress, their neurological abilities are kind of already set because it's one of the few sports where they have to learn how to move in 360 degrees, multiple, multiple skills with their bodies, um, integrates everything from balance to strength to endurance to power, uh, whereas most other sports kind of narrow down and they specify something, Yeah. Uh, whereas martial arts really entails, hey, no, you, you have a huge mix to play with. And because I still had that genetic idea, it, it amazed me that you could have one guy that was super, super powerful and you'd think he'd win by knockout, uh, but the other guy had endurance and just wore him down and then finally won in the end or vice versa. Um, whereas, you know, you join track, if you're slow and you want to sprint, you're not going to, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> like there's no exactly, way for you yeah. to win ever. It's like, quite there's never um, a way for you to win. one dimensional compared to martial arts and right. gymnastics. Right. I think, yeah. Exactly. So, so there's always a way to win. And since I knew I had a disadvantage with my lungs, um, I thought, well, then I'm going to have to find creative ways to make sure I can, you know, overcome that fact. Uh, whereas with the other sports, I was like, huh. you know, I ran cross country, but I never could like push past a point. My lungs just couldn't do it. Um, you know, I tried power sports, but because as a kid with CF, it's very hard to gain weight. And so I just could never be the big kid. So football slowly, you know, as I got older and the kids started getting this huge and big, I, I couldn't keep up with them. Um, but I brought some of my friends in martial arts into my world. 
and I whooped their butts. I, I, I basically <laughs> schooled them in my sport. So, yeah. so I liked that aspect that I could always find how to use my limitations as a weapon and, and how to make it benefit my abilities and kind of find out, well, you know what they don't know is that when they, you know, are on top of me and can't make me breathe, I'm pretty accustomed to that. Not breathing is like, that, yeah. okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. yeah. And I didn't yeah. panic. Whereas, you know, most people start to get choked and they panic. And I was just like, oh yeah, no, I, this is what it feels like to breathe normally for me. Like I don't mind. So uh, my lactic acid threshold was higher because of that. My just carbon dioxide threshold was higher, you know, than most people. Um, so I didn't burn out in the same way. So I did different type of endurance. Um, so martial arts allowed me to kind of play with some of that and, and that further. And that, as I went to college and my degree actually ended up being psychology and neutrogenics was such a beginning, right? It was barely in its infancy. Yeah. And it interested me a lot. There just was no program that kind of drove it yet. Otherwise, you know, like, like I told you, I would have been a PhD in neutrogenomics if it existed. And if I knew it, it was, it was a thing. So, but I didn't. So I ended up doing psychology because that obviously was the other aspect of martial arts that I enjoyed. Um, and so, you know, I did have to go overseas a lot to fight because most of America, they, it was hard. So to talk, talk about fight. MMA. So, so you, you, you know, you found yourself in martial arts. I mean, you don't start in MMA, right? Like, and, and, and let's just make sure that everyone, I, ha I have to be honest, when I first met you, I had to go, do a bit of a Google search. So, so yeah. for someone who doesn't come from a, a martial arts environment and have family members that did martial arts, why don't you just explain what MMA is and kind of where it lives in the martial arts world? Well, it got named MMA somewhere around like 2004, 2005. Um, okay. Prior to that, it was shoot wrestling, pancreas, um, sambo. It was basically martial arts with different rule sets all over the place. Okay. So I started when I was a kid with Taekwondo, which everyone kind of recognizes the big kicking art from Korea. A lot of flying sidekicks and fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, but you couldn't grab them. You couldn't choke them. You couldn't throw them to the ground. And there weren't any aspects of wrestling to it. Okay. Um, and there was always a question of, all right, who would be the better fighter? A boxer or a wrestler? Like if it was a real fight, what would happen? And you know, in martial arts, that was always a question. Which martial art was the best? Um, and, and there were different sports that were coming along. Um, shoot wrestling, sambo, um, pancreas that kind of started to ask those questions. And they would pair up different styles against each other. And uh, by the time I got to it, it was called no holds barred fighting. So it still wasn't called MMA. Um, it was, you know, ticket is there was no rules, but there were some rules. But uh you know, the marquee was basically, hey, no rules. Let's see who, who would win in different types yeah. of styles. Um, so I ended up doing Muay Thai, which is mainly in Thailand. Um, it's very much a kicking art where you can uh, kick them, you can punch them, you can knee them, and you can elbow them. Um, what punch you do? What, what's yeah, left down, you what's lose. Left over? <laughs> yeah. yeah so, but if you fall down, you lose. Um, and then I started doing jujitsu, and that's all grappling where you can choke them and break their arms, but you can't hit them. Yeah. And they started to blend those. About the time I was, you know, been in my pro career about four or five years, I got some opportunities to do like mixed martial arts. And that's where the rules broadened out and you could do, take them to the ground and you could try to choke them or you could try to knock them out or you could just try to wear them down and wrestle them and hold them in place. And uh, that's kind of where mixed martial arts came from um, okay. and just starting to get that blend in. Um, now it's a pretty common term and pretty much around the world now it's obviously recognized is kind of they all follow the same rule sets um okay so that's, that's great so you you find yourself in in we'll call it mma you're traveling a lot 
fighting professionally yeah. and you're doing a lot of traveling. I think that's where I interrupted you. I did. I, I traveled a lot because, you know, I, I knew that my career was going to be somewhat shortened due to my cystic fibrosis and that I wasn't going to be able to fight well into my 30s. So I wanted to make sure that when I was done fighting, I could be a great coach. I really wanted to be a coach. I knew that I could be a great coach. And so I purposely would, you know, change styles all the time. I would go in Japan and I would fight in Japan. I'd come to Thailand, fight in Thailand. I'd go to Korea and do, you know, a lot of much more Taekwondo type fights and things along those lines. Um, went back to Las Vegas, trained in jujitsu, and I would just bounce around and learn all types of things. And one of the things I would constantly be trying to absorb was how do coaches make their decisions? Like, why do they just coach the way they do? Is it just kind of the dogma attached to the art? Is it they're actually trying to find out the best methods or are they stuck in what worked for so-and-so 20 years ago still works now? Um, and I, I started to get into, you know, obviously the science of the weight cut and how, you know, especially when they started making more and more weight classes and how do I get to the right weight and how do I decide how to get to someone to that weight? And, you know, is it better to take someone and make them move up a weight class where they're stronger or take someone down a weight class so that they, or I'm sorry, I said that backwards, get them to lose a little weight so they feel stronger or get them to move up a weight class so they add more mass uh, and can kind of push around and not get hurt as well. And it was always fascinating to see, you saw both. I, I'd see guys who would drop a weight class and instantaneously be a better fighter because they had type 2B fiber muscles. It was much easier for them to stay lean. Um, you know, they velocity, they, they could generate speed so much better that it was just harder to keep up with them and they're better fighters there. And then other guys where you'd add mass to them, you move them up one or two weight classes and they became better fighters because then they could handle the hits a little bit better. Um, they weren't as quick because they were naturally a little bit more endurance, um, which ironically, you know, most heavyweights are known for their knockout power, but it's not because they're fast because they have so much mass behind it. Okay. Right. So, so most heavyweights get tired just because they're carrying so much weight, but their muscle fibers are actually slow twitch a lot of times. Uh, oh, interesting. They're not as explosive. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because if and they're of course, real explosive, when you talk about that, you know, we, we have genetics in the background. Everything you're talking about is genetics, right? It is. Well, it, like I said, because of my cystic fibrosis, I saw through, through that lens. Mm -hmm. Everything was through the lens of, well, why are they able to do that? It's not just, you know, you know, most of them were, well, it's a talent. And to me, that talent was, oh, you mean they're genetics. Like they're <laughs> not talented. They're just, they were born with that particular ability. And everything else that they're learning how to do takes work. Like, how do I, you know, maximize my natural? How do I maximize my genetic potential? Yeah, yeah exactly. How do you maximize yeah. my genetic potential? You know? And in my world, it was always, well, that's his natural talent. And I'm like, well, what's that mean, though? And to me, it meant, oh, well, what's, what's their genetics like? What were they given to start with? And, and how do I maximize that potential? So, um, so you, you took things, I mean, it's a great story. So you are a coach and I mean, but how did you learn? I mean, I know you are married to Dr. Christie, who, who is one of the greatest. No. A naturopath in the country, but before Christy, how did you learn your nutrition? Because you've obviously always been deeply attached to nutrition, saw the value of it from quite early on. And so, so before coming into Christy's world, like where were you learning your nutrition? Well, with cystic fibrosis, you obviously have uh, pancreas ducts that are kind of blocked up. So you end up taking enzymes from very, very young age. Um, I remember the story of the doctor. Yeah. Frustrated me because they'd always say, take five meals and two with snacks. And I'm like, no matter what I ate, like it didn't matter what kind of food it was. It didn't matter. Nope. Five with meals, two with snacks. And that didn't oh. make sense. And I was 12. Um, and so I started questioning that. And that don't mean the idea of learning a little bit about the gut biome, what kind of enzymes you're impacting. 
And I had to know that because it was harder for me to figure out what weight class I should be at and how to cut weight, right? So I could lose weight very, very easily, but I didn't want to. I was trying to maintain my muscle mass. Um, so most guys had trouble cutting weight. Yeah, I had trouble you had it gain, weight on gaining weight, yeah. yeah. So I, I instantly knew that, okay, well, enzymes play into that part. And um, I would recognize that some CF people, like my brother has CF2, they would be taking the same enzymes, eating the same meals and getting a different result. And that's right. I was like, well, wait a minute, that, that should be equal, right? So what is the defining factor that's the difference? Um, as much as a control environment as you can, it came down that to, is. wait a minute, his genetics are slightly <laughs> different than mine, yeah. right? So his genetics are a little different. And then uh, that led me into kind of learning a little bit more. And that's when I actually heard the word nutrigenomics. Um, and I started learning a little bit that. Um, and so the process of me learning about nutrition, I, I've gotten every nutrition certification under the sun that a trainer can have. Um, my favorite one is actually one called Precision Nutrition, which is by Dr. Berardi up in Canada. Um, I feel that that one's very much more practical as a coach. Um, but most of my nutrigenomic stuff was literally me going to the library um, and just reading. Oh, wow. And if I could sit, and so I did when I was in Las Vegas, I would go to UNLV and sit in some of the, I would like audit classes um, and go sit in for free as much as I could. Because yeah. um, my degree was psychology, but I would go into the other classes when I could. Um, but like I said, it was in its infancy. And it was, there's only a few colleges that were really diving into that really deep. So um, that's kind of where I began. And then uh, when I met Christy, our, our first date, we spent the three hours talking nutrigenomics. And that's- I hear so. I love <laughs> you. Yeah. I can tell um, the story about how- And it was yeah. fun because I had never met someone who was actually in the field. And it was fascinating to me that one, she thought I was in the field. And I said, well, not actually, no. I, I mean, I utilize that knowledge in what I do, but I'm not actually in the field of nutrigenomics. And she found that fascinating. And I found it fascinating that she actually got to do it as a job. Like, that's what she talked about as a job. So- and of course, you um, love the story where you say, like, if I had my choice, I'd be a PhD in your job. Because I know someone. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep, yeah. absolutely. So, um, I mean, okay, so let's let's get back on track. So you're in MMA, you're learning about nutrition and, and everything else. You are a coach. Um, let's let's talk, because I know that you, you are very different and you're always pushing the boundaries on how things are done differently, whether it's coaching, MMA, nutrition. You, I mean, you you were doing nutrigenomics before you knew there was a thing, you know, a field yeah. of science called yeah. nutrigenomics, you know. So you're all, I mean, and, and that's what I love to talk to you because you're always pushing the boundaries about how we do things and how you coach and the children. And and so let's, let's just touch base on that a little bit. You are a coach, you're working with fighters. What are the things, what are the, the things that you learned as a coach, what kind of, let me ask it a different way. What kind of coach are you? Well, uh, I don't know if there's a simple word for that, but I, I am very much a data-driven coach. Um, I, I don't like the idea of gut feelings. <laughs> so I don't go, oh, I had a gut feeling for this. Try it this way. Uh, that would always frustrate me because that's what most of my career was is you know, you can have a gut feeling kind of about your own responses, but it's very hard to understand the response of someone else based on your gut feeling. Um, and then you become, you know, this armchair guy who's like, oh, well, I would have done this. And, you know, um, but there's no reason why you're making that decision. There's no logical kind of cynical or logical pathway that you're following. So I do tend to be very data driven. Um, and I do want to make 
a very analytical decision on my coaching patterns that say, hey, we're going to go this route and this is the response I expect to get. And when I don't get that response, I go back and look at the data and I say, well, wait a minute, this is what I expected. Why didn't it happen? There must be something I'm missing. Uh, and, you know, when you're training people, that's extremely challenging because you have the psychological aspect, you got the physiological responses, um, and they kind of oftentimes fight against each other and, you, and you're not sure which one's kind of overpowering the other. Uh, so I would say that part of the reason why I end up doing a consult work with, with other coaches is they are very dogma, especially in martial arts. Everyone's got, I earned my black belt and I spent 20 years earning it. Therefore, this is the way you do it. And what they forget is, well, you were great at kicking because you have very long limbs, right? You're very explosive. You have type 2B fibers. Your training response is great. So you could throw a thousand kicks a day. But if I took someone else and made them do that, they're going to end up with a busted knee. They're going to be sore. They're actually going to lose skill sets. And they're doing the exact same thing you did when you were fighting. And so you would end up with coaches who, well, I'm just trying to find that one guy who is just like you, basically. He's just like me. That's what yeah. they're looking for. And I take yeah. pride in being able to take anyone. And I often joke that I'm never impressed by the coach that's able to take a star athlete and make him a champion. Because that star athlete kind of comes with the genetic material and background that all they need is a teeny push. It's not real hard. And a lot of different coaches could have got him there. Yeah. I'm much more impressed with the coach who takes the guy who has no coordination, has always said he has two left feet, doesn't know what the heck's going on, has never trained and gets them to a point where they're able to win a fight. Just one fight, you know, just even if it's an amateur fight, because that's a bigger gap to cover. That's a giant gap to cover. And that has to be data driven because you would guess you're going to get that person hurt. You're going to get them tore up and beat up. And, you know, even outside the world of martial arts, I see that with trainers and in gyms, you know, people who go in and they go, all right, here's the nutrition plan you're going to eat. And here's what you're going to do for your training. And this works for nine of my clients. And then when it doesn't work for that person, they blame the person where they weren't dedicated enough or they didn't do it right. Or and in reality, they did the same amount of effort. Every one of your clients did maybe even more because they were getting frustrated, maybe even push harder which ironically just gets them into deeper trouble. I was going to say that doesn't always help. Yeah. 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 And then again, yeah, it's genetics. Everything you talk about is right. genetics, right? Yep. So, so, you know, I, I'm fascinated by coaches. Um, and, and I know when you talk and you talk about data-driven and you talk about the one, the one element to coaching, which I think is, is so important. I don't, as I say, I, I have so little insight into this world of coaching is, is kind of the psychosocial environment um, and relationship between the coach. And I know that, I know, you know, that you're brilliant as a, as a coach around physiology and genetics and technique and then, but you're also known for your ability to, to mentor or I don't know, or coach, I guess is the word, but the kind of psychosocial dimension. So what about maybe give us a little bit of insight on that? You know, a lot of it comes down to kind of recognizing when someone's has to have a feeling of accomplishment. So we tend to choose the sports that we gravitately very well and get better at quickly. So if I'm a good runner, I will love soccer. I just have to be taught a little bit on how the game is played and what to do with the ball. But if I naturally suck at running, no matter how hard I work at it, I'm never really going to enjoy soccer. I might enjoy it as a sport because I love watching it. But every time I try to play it, I feel like a loser right? Because I just can't keep up. I can't run. No matter how much training I put behind it. I usually equate it, you know, if you're a big guy who's 250 pounds and you're going out for, you know, track, 
there aren't many things in track other than shot put that you're going to be able to do very well. And it's not like, going to no be fun. What, no matter how hard you train. Yeah. And same if you're a little guy. If you're five foot four and you want to play basketball, you got some major hurdles there. That's going to be very, very challenging. And so being able to recognize someone's sense of accomplishment. So usually I end every single session and I check in with them and I say, well, what do you think you did today? What, what did you accomplish? And if I get an answer that says, man, I, I suck today all day long, then my job as a coach, my job as a coach is to go, but that was the point today. Like you're trying to figure out what you sucked at. So you know what you need to work on. So you did accomplish something. So you're always doing that goofy little spin to make them walk away going, oh, I want to show up tomorrow because yeah. I did accomplish something. You don't want someone walking away from a session going, man, I'm, I think I'm getting worse or that wasn't very good or I'm not, I'm not ready for this or you need them walking away going, no, no, I did get something out of that. Even if it's a negative loop of, oh, wow, I got my butt kicked today, but now I know that I'm very susceptible to getting choked if I go spinning in that silly little kick I tried. Um, and so you need to get that aspect of accomplishment um, and that will help them stay on track. And that's even true when I'm doing nutritional clients um, who just, nutrition's just vast, right? It's just deep, 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 deep. And there's so much behind nutrition that is more psychological um, than it is anything else. Because um, there's so many feelings and attachments and emotions attached to your food. And you have to spin that same way, especially since they have that. But, you know, that, that soup makes me feel so good. And I know, but it's a milk-based soup and you're kind of lactose intolerant. Yeah. So why do you think it makes you feel good? It only makes you feel good because you have great memory as a kid. Make mom yeah. making that particular soup. But that doesn't mean that you're naturally feeling better. You just imagine you're feeling better off that. You know, I joke, I call it the birth cake, birthday cake effect. Um, where if you have a birthday cake in front of you, you smile before you even took a bite. Right? We're all happy to eat the birthday cake. We're all thinking, oh, this is going to be awesome. And it could be the stalest cake you've ever eaten. You're like, yeah, but it's birthday cake. You know, so and you it's birthday it. cake, so it's all good. Right? Yeah. yeah, so you have a whole piece of birthday cake, even if it's the worst cake you've ever had. You're like, well, it's not the best, but it's birthday cake. So you eat it anyway. It's right? a good analogy. Um, I think I might use that. I might steal yeah, the thing. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah, the birthday cake effect, it, 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 it resonates with people because they're like, yeah, no, I've definitely had bad birthday cake. Did you stop eating it though? No, no, oh, it was, my it was birthday, birthday cake. <laughs> it was my birthday cake. So that was good. Um, that, that just, the understanding of the power of that nutritional response and how much, you know, and I usually get around that by telling them, look, a lot of those decisions aren't being made by your rational brain. Like you're not making a bad decision mm. because you couldn't think it out. You're making a bad decision because you have a trillion bacteria thinking for you. <laughs> like <laughs> everything else thinking for you. You're not really thinking. Like you are not cognitively making that choice. Um, your body's kind of making that choice without you. Um, and so you have to figure out cognitively, prepare it beforehand. I usually say, look, the bacteria don't come with a lot of, well, one, sentience, and they aren't real good at cognitive problem no, solving. They're just going, feed so me sugar, feed go. me sugar, so feed me sugar. I just said, yeah. yeah, I said, basically, your bacteria are like toddlers. They just want what they want. <laughs> like, they don't, can't understand why. They don't realize that there's consequences to it all. They just want what they want. And so you have to preemptively plan as if you're about to bring 10 toddlers into your room. You got to, you know, proof it. You got to kid proof the room. You can't just leave the knives laying around and things that the toddlers will screw up. Um, or puppies, you know, yeah, you know or donuts. Puppies, yeah, yeah, whatever it is. Same you, thing, you yeah. Preemptively don't think leave them lying around. Yeah. Yeah. You got to preemptively think ahead of it. Um, I love that. And that I, comes true. Getting a lot of yeah. tricks from you today, mate. So, so, you know, you're, 
the conversation we had. So you become a coach, obviously, I, I'm, I can, I know that everyone's going to hear the, the incredible level of passion and compassion and empathy and expertise that's coming through. But then, you know, we have a conversation about this amazing brand you're building called Fight Genomics. And it's, it's F-Y-T-E, right? Yes. F-Y-T, Fight Genomics. Yep. And this is the first time in my life in 23 years of working in the genetic space where I'm having a conversation of how to bring genetics into a martial arts environment. And, you know, this, this is really a first for me. And I thought I'd seen it all and, and quite a unique thing. Can you talk a little bit about what your, how you see that working and, and what it really is when you, when you bring together these worlds of, of genetics and martial arts? Well, like we kind of mentioned earlier, with martial arts, any body type can play, right? Most sports, you got to have a certain type of body to be able to play the sport, right? Basketball, you got to be tall, otherwise you're not going to be good. Football, you got to be big or you're not going to be that good. Tennis, you got to be quick and nimble and fast twitch. But martial arts, I can literally take any body part or any body type and get them to be competitive. Um, it just changes how they need to train, Right. And so utilizing genetics allows us to take out all the trial and error. So I say, give me anybody and I can get them there. And I can either get them there over the course of a decade doing a lot of trial and error and high risk of injury during that time. Or I can look at their genetics and say, hey, these are the aspects around your training I need to focus on. This is what we need to be wary of. This is what is always going to be easy for you to do. So why would we spend more time there? Right. And now I can minimize the amount of time that I'm putting their body through in training to maximize the benefits they're getting out of that training. Right. And same when it comes to nutrition, I can say, well, look, we start here. We can do some other kind of nutritional testing like KBMO and things along those lines, but narrow down the choices. So it doesn't mean there's still things you got to do a little trial and error with, but I can narrow oh. it down where it becomes a realistic time frame. Um, otherwise, you start training with your 20 and I won't make you a pro until you're 40. You're not going to be a pro. You're you've kind of surpassed gonna the be, point where you have an opportunity. Yeah. Gonna miss the, so if miss I can the... narrow that down, yeah. And it also means that I can now take anybody and, and get them through that cycle. Whereas in the past, a coach always had difficulty with fighters who were a different body type or a different response to the training they were doing. And they were just called weak. Right. So, <laughs> well, oh no, we always stand at three hour horse stands. And you had some of the kids in the class who no problem. I mean, it was a struggle. It's still a workout. It's still hard, but they got better at it. And you had some who did it every single week and they just didn't get any better. And you couldn't figure out why. But now I can say, oh, this, this is why. I mean, th these are reasons why it's not actually happening. Look at their training response. It's horrible. Like it doesn't matter how often they practice that. They just aren't going to get the same gains at, yep. a, at the same pace as someone who doesn't. Right. Um, with martial arts, why I decided to really kind of focus on combat arts is obviously the goal of the art is to hurt other people, <laughs> which is a little you know, odd, right? So, so I wanted to be able to go to people and say, hey, look, you have a really, really low risk to be able to influence your BDNF. You have really bad comp. Like these are things that are going to make a high risk for your brain injuries. And, you know, this really isn't a sport that you want to be professional in. You don't want to go that level. Just the risk of CTE and all these things are, are bubbling up. And so it's great that you want to train, maybe do a couple amateurs, but you just shouldn't probably go to that level with it, right? And I think um, that was our first discussion, Eric. We were spe speaking yeah. about concussion. He was saying, like, how come, you know, you've got all these players and, you know, uh, so some of the fighters will be, you know, have concussion, get beaten up on the head and be absolutely fine. 
and some will will suffer you know terrible side effects and, and not be fine and you were asking me the question you know will will genetics help me understand who, who the ones that are most vulnerable yes um and as the more we begin to do the more we're starting to recognize some of those patterns and you know we're still probably a thousand fighters away before we have a big enough database to make conclusive decisions on it but some of the things i realized is like when they're able like the bdnf so mm -hmm. that's such a neurotropic ability to re regenerate cells Absolutely. and in the if brain, they yeah. do that it means that they can go in and train hard get some hits and within a week do that same sort of training again whereas if they just can't influence that at all and it's kind of bad and stuck where it is and there's no way for them to really influence it you know i can only have them getting hit in the head minimum amount of times and, and so that type of training changes because they need a good 60 days to recover from even just light contact to the head. Yeah. Uh, because they don't repair it as well. And you can do some things to kind of amp up their natural facilitation, you know, different endurance exercises and things along those lines. But genetically, if it just, you just can't change it. I mean, it's just always going to be kind of something they can't influence. Um, whereas the ones who influence, it doesn't mean it's awesome, but at least now I know, hey, if I train them right, they're, they can influence it to be a better response. Right. You know what you're working with, yeah. Yep, yep. I never thought, as I said, you know, the genetics of hurting someone—it's going to be a new tagline for me, or you, yep. you know. But but it is very interesting, and I do think because you are in a, in a in a new space, as you say, you know, you're almost creating the space for yourself, and you you know, you'll be feeding back to us and telling us what you're finding in terms of how genetics can be useful in, in making these decisions around your fighters. I mean, I think it's absolutely brilliant and fascinating. I can't wait to see, um, you know, more of this come to things. So, so Merrick, we are, we are moving on a time. I want to make sure um, that uh, I think everyone's got, got an idea of, of, you know, who you are as a coach, as a, as a person, as a human, um, where you came from, the amazing work you're doing with Fight Genomics. I think I want to finish off by just asking you for some some of your wisdom where you look back um, and you look at, um, you know, other 12-year-olds or maybe 20-year-olds who, who are looking at you and going, wow, you know, um, you're doing amazing work, you're so wise, you're like you're challenging paradigms and stuff like that. What is the advice uh, that you would give to them as they start out in, in, in their journey? You know um similar to me you know when i was 20 i thought boy i know a lot and then when i was 25 i realized i was really stupid and then when i was 30 i thought i knew a lot and then when i was 35 i didn't know anything and so to recognize that yeah you know what enjoy the process of learning especially this is still a new science i mean every year we're learning more and more and more and it's so fast-paced compared to most other things that kind of sciences that are growing um so go into it going you know what i should be learning something monthly every single month um you know, and with 3x4, obviously jumping on the, the little learns on Tuesday. I love those. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Just, sometimes it's stuff I know, but even that reinforcement, because it's just so much info. You know, it's just so much that I'll be like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot I knew that. You know, and, and so you really have to make that commitment to learning something every single month, every single week, just adding to that knowledge base and reinforcing what you think you know, and then recognizing well, there's always going to be new data that might change that answer that might, you know, kind of manipulate what you thought you knew about it um and it doesn't make it wrong it makes it super exciting and uh yeah. and something that, brains you'll never be bored you'll never be bored it's not like you're going to learn something new fixed, so yeah i like that idea of like learn something new every month you know um even if it's not in your field i think that's also important like it doesn't have to be right 
in your area. Well, just like I said, my degree is in psychology. And, yeah. you know, I'm an MMA coach, but this empowers my own fields and mm -hmm. being able to do better at those. I have no doubt. Well, Merrick Mullen, it's been an absolute um, joy talking to you. I knew it would be, so it hasn't disappointed at all. And I'm glad that I'll be able to share this with a whole lot of people out there and that they'll be able to get to know you a little bit and, yeah. and hear the work that you're doing. So thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, if uh, anyone does want to kind of dive in or ask me questions, if they go to myfyte.com, it's myfight.com. It's kind of where that whole fight genomic stuff is at. Uh, and they'll see links in there where they could ask us questions and things like that. Brilliant. My fight genomics. Yep. Come. Brilliant. And and really, America's super approachable and very wise and, and knows his space and, you know, and very generous with his, his time. So thank you, Merrick. And I look forward to working with you for the next many decades. Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast. Brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com backslash podcasts.